official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. So good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you, Mission family, and others that may be uh, listening as well. Um, I have to tell you, as we continue this sermon series on the good news, on the gospel message, um, I'm a bit nervous about speaking today. Uh, I've been charged with the task of talking about and looking at the relevance of the gospel message to young uh, people today. And I, uh, as I was preparing it, I was really struck by the fact that when I was young myself, I would have had a tendency to listen to uh, this kind of uh, talk and probably feel like it was uh, some old person decrying my my generation and not really understanding it. And um, I, so I just, I, if you're young and you're listening, I ask for mercy uh, in this uh, conversation that we're going to have today. What I'm going to share is uh, based on uh, a lot of what I do in terms of my job. It's based on the thousands of conversations I have every year with high school and uh, young adults. Uh, it's based on the millions of observation points I have uh, through what I do as well. And I, I'm really going to work hard to present it as objectively as possible, as non-judgmental as possible, because I think that's really important. So I know there's going to be a tendency for you uh, that are younger to say, okay, boomer, you know, and uh, and react a little bit to the message from that perspective. But I just would encourage you, um, give me a little grace as I as I share this today. Um, I want to talk first about the four realities that uh, are impacting young people today and uh, in the context for sort of understanding uh, youth culture. The first of those is what I call the the challenge or reality of self-identity. And uh, the, the reality in terms of understanding this is that this is no different than what I might have experienced when I was a young person. But the context in which it's experienced is extremely different. Let me explain. So as we go into adolescence, every single one of us, so somewhere around sixth, seventh, eighth grade, we begin to become aware of the world around us. And as we become aware of that world around us, we begin to uh, want to understand our place in it. Who am I? Where do I find value? Uh, what, where do I find affirmation in who I am? Uh, what's my purpose? All these kinds of questions that are a part of identity. And they're questions that have always been asked by young people, but the context for which they're being asked today is very different. And one of those differences, one of the major differences is the impact and role of social media. And I know there's a lot of different forms that social media takes, but I want to pick on Instagram a little bit. Um, the reality with how Instagram functions is that it's about posting a picture and uh, thinking and seeing the kind of feedback that you receive on it. So by the nature of it being posting of a picture, it's highly oriented towards the external. Uh, it's not terribly interested in character or internal uh, beauty or any of those kinds of things. It tends to be highly focused on the external. And we tend to see that, that desire that all of us have, particularly during those young phases of our life for affirmation, it is found through the kinds of responses and replies that we get to the Instagram posts that we, we make. On top of that, there's a second challenge with it in that, that we don't actually present the reality of our lives. We present some version of the reality of our lives that we want to project to others 
on uh, social media, on Instagram. And so as a person who's, uh, who's sitting there looking at how other people are presenting their life, you end up feeling like your life doesn't measure up. In fact, when you see your friends uh, engaged in some kind of social behavior and you're not with them, it creates what we call FOMO, fear of missing out. And so you have these huge challenges to answering these questions of identity in today's world because of the impact and role of social media. And the result of that is that we have the highest levels of anxiety and depression uh, amongst young people than we've ever had. We're dealing in counseling circles with, with girls as young as eight years old. Um, so you're, you're just seeing things that just didn't exist a generation before. That's not the only context that makes this question uh, of self-identity uh, particularly challenging for young people today. When I was going through answering these questions, uh, I, was, I had a, a normative impact. A, a, um, uh, my, there was a square around what was possible for me to answer that question because of who had influence in my life. It was primarily my family, somewhat my community, uh, and maybe somewhat extended into media. In today's world, that extension is much broader because of the role of the internet. So as I go into asking these questions about self-identity, uh, I have some formational capacity in those people that are close to me that love me, but a lot of that formation and a lot of the ways I answer those questions actually are in finding people that echo my perspectives someplace deep out on the internet. And that changes how I answer those kinds of questions. And it's, it's really, honestly, no different than in my generation where you might find that all the people you interact with on social media think the way that you do, have the same political perspectives that you do, are, you know, do similar jobs, all those kind of things. But this, in a youth generation that's looking at these questions of self-identity, it involves going out there and finding people who essentially echo your own perspective. And that's not necessarily the healthiest way to answer that question. Second reality for young people today is that uh, they are risk averse. Uh, there's a fear of failure amongst young people. And this comes because this is a generation that grew up with, um, you know, everybody gets a trophy. Uh, their, their experience in youth sports was about uh, everybody getting a trophy. They've been told over and over again, you are special. And, uh, and that plays into it in a way because if I take a chance on something and don't do well at it, I must not be as special as I thought I was. And that's a, a place that you don't typically want to go. And a big reason for that is, that is how we handle failure in our culture today. When uh, you, all you need to do is uh, go on YouTube and do a search for fail videos and fail videos sort of celebrate in a mocking kind of way when somebody blows it and does something stupid and you know it's, it's a celebration of failure. But the reality is people are not failing at any greater rate today than they did when I was a young person, but there was no such thing as YouTube and no such thing as fail videos at that time. And so that perspective, the, the impact of that um, has really resulted in a, in a generation, a, a group of young people who are risk averse, who have a fear of failure, and that impacts uh, their approach to life. And it particularly impacts their approach to uh, being willing to take social chances uh, because you, want, you don't want to fail because your failure could become a very public event. Third characteristic of youth culture is a strong desire for self-sufficiency, control over one's environment. 
and it's brought, uh, it's made unique for this generation because of what's been going on in world events in their lifetime. This is no different. Every generation goes through this. I had my own desires for self-sufficiency, but the context with which I acted those out was different because of the set of world events that were current during my time. Uh, today's young people have grown through, uh, grown up through four major world crises. Y2K, uh, 9-11, the Great Recession, which was the second largest economic debacle in the history of America. It's had a profound impact on, on this generation. And now COVID-19 pandemic. This generation is the first generation in American history that knows uh, with some certainty that they will not enjoy the same standard of living that their parents had. This is a generation that's grown up where there's unprecedented disparity between the rich and the poor. Probably second only and maybe beyond even what happened during the Gilded Age of the 1890s. This impacts how this generation thinks about free markets and about opportunity. Uh, they see the free market as not working. And, um, and this has made a difference with how they approach life. Uh, and because they, there's a tendency to be risk averse, there's also a tendency to not want to uh, fail and therefore, which is necessary for wanting to be an entrepreneur. So again, not seeing the market work uh, for them. And the result of this is this desire to control oneself in a very insular kind of way. So um, I see among young adults today, a rising interest in uh, uh, doing raising your own garden, uh, having chickens, uh, having a small house, you know, the tiny house movements, uh, the whole desire to shop locally, uh, to have more control over the, the process of production of goods, uh, to be interested in arts and crafts in a way that wasn't necessarily nearly as popular when I was a young adult. So you have a, a very different approach and it comes out of this desire of being shaped of self-sufficiency that's been shaped by the world events of their lifetime. And then finally, the fourth characteristic of young people today are that they are less worried about truth and more concerned about feelings. This is the f generation that has really grown up where the dominant philosophical perspective uh, in their schools, in their life, in the media is what we call moral relativism. It's the idea that um, you have your own idea of what truth is. I have my own idea of truth. I have my own understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And it's really important that I live true to what my perspective is. And it's important that you live true to what your perspective is as well. And this is really a product of growing up in postmodernism. This idea that uh, each of us is living out a story that's brought out by the circumstances uh, circumstances of our life, where we happen to be, uh, the benefits that we've happened to accrue in life, and so on. And that shapes our reality and therefore shapes how we see the world and make sense of the world around us. And because of this tendency to uh, value feelings as highly as they do, um, and, uh, and maybe diminish the importance of truth, there really has been a tendency to move away from some traditional perspectives that the evangelical church has had. So you take a position like uh, the pro-life perspective that's typically been dominant in evangelical churches, and young people look at it and say, hey, I appreciate the fact that you hold that view, but you seem to only hold that view when the child is still in the womb. When this child is born and they're living in poverty and don't have access to health care, uh, these things are of concern to me because if we're going to be pro-life, this should be part of being pro-life. Or, um, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum when you, uh, the evangelical church has typically supported the death penalty, for example, 
and a young person who says, I resonate with the pro-life perspective, but I think it needs to extend to individuals who um, have violated some of the uh, rules of our society and have maybe been condemned to death. And so uh, many times, young people, because of this different approach, have really challenged some of the ways of understanding the world that have been dominant within uh, evangelical circles. So I share those four realities, those four uh, challenges, those four perspectives that I think are, are dominant within youth culture today. And I want to make, uh, begin to make a connection because uh, I think some of you that were older as listening to that are like, yeah, that's right. You know, that's a problem. They need the good news. And, and we all need the good news. We all need the gospel message. But the reality of the gospel is that every generation interprets the gospel message but the gospel never changes. It's a really powerful axiom. And our tendency is we want to deliver the gospel message in the same way that we came to faith in Christ. So in my generation, uh, it was very common to use something called the Romans Road in helping somebody come to an understanding of uh, faith in God. And the Romans Road begins with uh, the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23 and continues in Romans 6.23 where it promises that the wages of sin are death. And then it goes on to say that God's made a way and that all we need to do is call out to him and he will save us. And that message, it is the gospel message. It's true, right? But it does not resonate with where young people are coming uh, coming from today. It's about making a logic statement uh, that relates to a series of uh, very things that are very true, and it's completely not the way that the world is understood by young people today. And so some of you that are listening to this saying, oh, you know, it sounds like Brian wants to water down the gospel message, and, you know, that's a problem. How can you change the gospel? You have to look at Scripture and understand this is exactly what God has always done. Think about the story of Philip and uh, the Ethiopian leader. So Philip is called by God to go minister to this Ethiopian leader who's on the way home from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. He's riding in his chariot. Philip comes alongside, and this uh, Ethiopian leader who had been worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem was now going to his home, is actually reading from the scroll of Isaiah. In in Acts 8.35, it talks about the fact that he invites uh, Philip onto his chariot with him. And uh, Philip, it says, beginning right where he was at, began to explain the gospel message to him. I love that phrase, beginning where he was at, because over and over, we see where God does that exactly with it. That's the interpretation of the gospel message for the audience that's receiving it, for the new generation. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 uh, through 23. I'm going to read that passage. Uh, it says, this is the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more uh, of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel. I love that because, again, he's showing the fact that it's the same gospel message, but I'm willing to interpret it, I'm willing to understand it, and I'm willing to understand my audience and connect with them. I always think that um, 
pastors and ministers and evangelists today are probably jealous when they look at the story of Peter in Acts when he gives the gospel message at the Pentecost, right? You read that message and you think, wow, I can't believe all those people came to faith in God. I've preached more powerful messages than that and I've never seen the kind of response that Peter had. But Peter's message was specific to the audience who received it. It was a group of people who took their Jewish faith quite seriously, had come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, and his message traced out of the history of Judaism the uh, reason that this is the, the way that God wanted the world to be to bring the gospel message to the people of the world, and people responded to it. It's not just something that we see in scripture, we actually see the same trend when it comes to figures of Christendom. Um, think about the life of Augustine, who was one of our earliest church fathers. Before Augustine had a relationship with God, he was, he was living the happy life. He, um, he was a partier. He loved to drink. He um, had uh, you know, relationships with women that were not uh, biblical. He, uh, you know, this is the kind of individual he was. One day, he's hanging out with a friend, and he hears a child singing. And the child sings uh, these words. It's something that said, pick up and read. And he thought, what kid would be singing about picking up and reading? This must be a message from God. And he looks around him and his friend had a scroll there and he picks up a scroll and it was a scroll of Romans chapter 13. And as he read this passage, um, it included Romans 13 verses 13 and 14. And uh, this is what those words say there. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine was instantly convicted and he began to recognize why, uh, what he needed to have done differently in his life. And he gave himself to Christ at that very moment. And you and I, when we read this passage, might think, hey, this doesn't resonate with me at all. Sounds like a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. That's another example, though, of the gospel message being made relevant to a generation, being made relevant to the individual that's hearing that uh, passage. Or think about Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther was a priest. He was a religious figure. He um, had defined his relationship with God, though, about what he did and doing the right things and in earning his, uh, God's favor. And one day when he was reading scripture, he comes across Romans 1.17, where it says, the right, it finishes with this, the righteous shall live by faith. And he was convicted and he felt I've mistaken what, it was, what was needed to have a relationship with God. And he began to understand the role of grace and the role of faith and the need to believe. And it forever changed him. And he became one of the leaders of the Reformation uh, movement. Or think of the story of Fanny Crosby, who was probably uh, the greatest hymn writer in the history of uh, the church. Um, she grew up in a very religious household, uh, it was about, in fact, you know, it was about a lot of do's and don'ts and about, uh, you know, memorizing the Bible and so on, but she didn't have a real relationship with God. And when, when she was in her early 20s, she was blind. Um, she was, had stepped in, walked into a Methodist church and heard this hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. She heard this hymn, uh, and the last verse of it read, reads this, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And she was struck by the love of God and his deep love for us. And that was the gospel message that changed her life. So every generation interprets the gospel message 
but the gospel message does not change. So let's go back and think about those four characteristics of young people today and think about how we can, how the gospel message speaks to the situation that they're in. So first we had talked about this challenge of self-identity, the fact that the way that the social media has impacted how those questions of who I am, uh, how do I know what's important in my life, where do I receive affirmation, uh, how those questions are answered differently in the world of social media, differently in the world where I can find people who echo my thoughts on the internet, and, uh, and think about how, what scripture might have to say related to them. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a, a young man who uh, very much uh, uh, was seeking affirmation in his life, and uh, it's the young man, Saul, and Saul was uh, sought to be good at what he was doing from a religious perspective, and part of his interpretation of what it meant to be a good person, uh, to be a uh, person who took seriously the values that he had in life Uh, he believed that he needed to be persecuting the early Christian church. And after he had done that in the area around Jerusalem, he actually is gonna go to Damascus and continue in that kind of uh, behavior, imprisoning perhaps some of the uh, Christian leaders that were in the city of Damascus. And as he's on his way, God appears to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you got to think about what that does because Saul was receiving affirmation. He had answered these questions of self-identity. He knew who he was. He was uh, living this out in truth to what he felt like his was his calling. And God was coming to him and saying, what you're doing is not what I want for you. He challenges what Saul had seen as being his self-identity. He challenged the voices of affirmation that, that Saul had in his life. And at that moment, Saul's life is forever changed because he recognizes his deep need for a savior. The second challenge we looked at was this um, aspect of which uh, young people today were raising a generation that struggles with failure. And I have to think that part of the reason they struggle for those that have grown up in the church kind of setting particularly is that our Sunday school way of understanding the biblical heroes is about presenting them as being almost faultless. And for those listening, you feel like I don't measure up. But we forget the fact that God loves failures. He loves people that that did not do it right because that's human and it's real and takes that and is still able to work with it. Think about Joseph. Joseph was... Uh, so overcome with pride that his brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. He spends time in a prison. He looks like a complete failure from the world's perspective. And then God raises him up, makes him the second uh, person in, under the Pharaoh in the kingdom of, of Egypt. And he's able to rescue the, his brothers, the children of Israel, uh, through, uh, you know, through this eventual success in his life. Or you think about Moses, and we're all so great about remembering the fact that he led the people of Israel um, out of Egypt, right? But do we remember earlier in his life, he actually murdered a man? Talk about an ultimate failure, right? Or the story of David, who may have been the greatest king in all of Israel. And yet, in uh, in his life, I mean, he lusted after a woman, he uh, committed adultery with her, he fathered a child with her, and he has her husband murdered. That's pretty much the story of a failure. And he could have lived in that failure, but God took him, and because of his repentance, used him, and he becomes you know, an incredible king that's celebrated throughout the history of Israel. And we have a tendency, as we 
to forget the fact that God loves failure and he works with people who are failures. He's not afraid of failure. And I think we need to recognize as we encourage and talk to young people to not be scared of failure, not to fear failure. Third characteristic that we talked about was this desire for self-sufficiency. And, and again, this is very natural and there's actually a lot to like about it, certainly better than the materialism that might have dictated my uh, generation during our youth. But the reality of the matter is there's a limit to that self-sufficiency. There's a point at which that self-sufficiency ends and we're, we simply are not able to meet all of our needs. And that's particularly true when it comes to our spiritual needs. One has only to look at the story of Adam and Eve, this first sharing of the gospel message to recognize the truth in that. Adam and Eve's uh, where they had their first sin, uh, where they first had their conflict with God was a desire on their part to be like God. To, to want to live their life in a way that they didn't need God. And he'd only given them one rule, and it was about not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that's what they chose to go out and do. And they did that because they wanted to be in a situation of being self-sufficient. There's a limit to our self-sufficiency. We're not able to meet all of our needs. And the, the more we understand that, the more we recognize that, the more that we can see uh, the fact of the good news of God, that he's made a way uh, to fill all those gaps in our ability to be self-sufficient. And then finally, the fourth characteristic um, that we talked about, this um, you know, uh, desire for uh, where we prioritize feelings perhaps over truth. And the reality is you see this in scripture. I mean, we serve a God who loved so much that when he was here on earth as Christ, he cried when he saw the response of his, his friends to the death of his own friend, Lazarus. Or it describes God as being like a mother hen who gathers the, his chicks to himself to protect them. Or it over and over again in scripture, it talks about the deep love that God has for his people and the deep love he has for all of humanity. And the reality of the matter is there's a lot about the feelings of God that in many ways were left out by my generation, but that's not all of who God is. So I would challenge you that when you, if you're young today that you don't recognize just the feeling aspect of who God is, but we begin to understand all of who God is. He's infinite, he's holy, he's perfect, and all of these things need to become part of that picture and understanding that we have of God. And further for this generation that's a postmodern generation, it's this recognition that the gospel message at its core is a narrative. It's a story. This is the greatest love story ever told. God made us as human beings to be in relationship with him. And then man chose to do, to separate himself from God, to disobey God. And God could have left it just like that. But no, God loved us so much that he made a way for our relationship with him to be restored. He sent his son to earth. Christ lived a sinless, perfect life and he died on the cross. And when he was dying on the cross, God poured out on him all the sins of the world, all the punishment that we deserve were carried and borne by Christ on the cross. And all we have to do as human beings is to recognize our failings, to recognize that we aren't self-sufficient on our own, to recognize that we desperately need a savior and to believe in what he's done through his son and our relationship with God will be restored. And it will put us back in that position that God wants us to be in with him. That is the gospel message. And it's the same gospel message that's always been the gospel message, but it is needing to be interpreted for a new generation um, I want to finish with this today. If you're an 
older person listening to this message, I want to challenge you. Um, are you, um, have you put effort into understanding young people today? Have you uh, sought to think about how this gospel message can be interpreted for them? Or are you set in your ways that the only way to understand the gospel is the way that you understand the gospel message? And if you're young and are listening to this today and you know, had a tendency to want to discount what I've said and think, how in the world can this guy know this? This is not really true, and you're just outdated. I just would really challenge you with that the, the good news is there for you with exactly what you're dealing with in life. Your desire for self-identity, that's always been there, and God has an answer for that approach. Your fear of failure God has an answer. He loves that. Um, your desire for self-sufficiency, your um, embracing of feelings over truth, God is there in the midst of that, speaking to your life, ready to respond to you because of his deep love for you. Thank you. Let me just close this in a word of prayer. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you do, Lord. And um, through me through this broken vessel that's shared today, Lord. I just pray for mercy and grace as these words go out. Lord, I just uh, thank you that uh, you've made a way. Uh, You've made a way for us to be in relationship with you, Lord. We love you for that. Thank you for doing that. Lord, for each of us that have heard this today, Lord, I just pray that we would be willing to understand how the gospel message connects with the audience, understand how it connects with the new generation, Lord, and as part of a new generation, to not see it as being outdated, but to recognize, hey, I can understand this, I can interpret it for my own generation. Lord, I I thank you for all that you've done, and um, we love you for this. In Christ's name, amen. We're at a point right now where uh, if you were in our congregation, we would actually be um, giving an opportunity for people to give their tithes and offerings. And if you're part of the mission family, I'd welcome you to do that right now, whether you do it through our app uh, or through our website. I would encourage you to give, uh, and it allows the ministry and work of this church to continue even in the midst of COVID-19. If you're not part of our church and you're listening to this today, we have no expectation that you would give. Uh, In fact, you might think it's rather odd that I even would be asking, but um, as believers, as members of this church, we are committed to seeing the work of the mission of living out God's radical love in this community and around the globe be able to continue. So thank you for that today. Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.